So as, as uh, we've already experienced, um, it's, it's a great pleasure today uh, to have Eric Lecce here. Uh, he's an elder at Trinity Church in Kirkland. Uh, his wife, Julie, is here. There are four boys. Uh, so make sure you introduce yourselves to him. Welcome him. Um, I'm very excited about this. When I sent out the email, he, he was the first one to respond. So just, he has a lot of zeal to come here and share today. And I'm very happy about that. So um, I know we don't do like a round of applause for for preachers, but yay. <laughs> All right, well, thank you for having me. It is, a, is an honor and a privilege to be able to bring the word to you this morning. I want to just read again the first couple of verses from the Gospel of John that was read during the scripture reading this morning. So John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, as we open and study your word today, we ask that you will use it to instruct us, convict us, strengthen us, encourage us. Please bless this time as we seek to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who you are and how we are to be as your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, thank you for for having me. One of the first things I did when I knew I was going to come was, I'll go look at the Redeemer website. And I only made as far as the first sentence. So the first sentence that I saw on the Redeemer website says, you are part of an epic story. And that is one of my favorite things to think about, about how God is writing a story and how we are all part of his story that started at creation and is ongoing. So the, the three-act story arc is the most common story structure across historical and and cultural boundaries. The three-act structure is likely what most of you were taught in middle school. And for all of you out there who haven't gotten to middle school yet, you will learn the three-act story structure when you get there. It's the form of most short stories, novels, movies. Three acts are often described as the setup, the confrontation, and the resolution. In the Bible, the gospel story is the three-act story. The biblical authors did not present the Bible in three acts so that we could understand it better. Instead, we understand stories better because they reflect the structure of the gospel. We were created for stories that echo the gospel. So what is the three acts of the gospel? Act one, God creates Adam and Eve, placing them in the garden and giving them dominion over the earth. Act two begins very quickly. Adam and Eve rebel against God's only command, setting up the conflict between a holy God and his rebellious creation. For generations, Israel persists in a cycle of sin and repentance, demonstrating man's inability to defeat sin on their own. Then the Son of God is born. He brings the sin of Israel into sharp contrast with his own perfect holy life. Each conversation and confrontation Jesus has with the leaders of the day raises the stakes until they've had enough. Then in one weekend, we have the climax of redemptive history. On Friday, the innocent one is found guilty, executed. On Saturday, he's in the grave. 
On Sunday, history changes. Resurrection. God redeems his people in a most dramatic way. As Act 3 begins, the victory has been won. Sin is defeated. Yet we live in a world where the final redemption of all creation is still to come. God is resolving the story and will continue to resolve the story finally with all glory and honor resting on him. That is the gospel story. But every Christian has a gospel storyline in their lives as well. We all have a creation, a fall, a redemption, and God is working to resolve our story as well. But we also have little gospel storylines every day in our lives, in our smaller stories and events. And as gospel storytellers, gospel story livers, we must be tuned into the gospel storylines in these everyday events. We sin and we fall, we confess and are restored. We see repeated conflict and resolution. And we can't shy away from the conflict or resolution, for only with the stories, the stories with the dark and the light, can the grace of our God be seen. These are the stories of our lives. And our little stories are part of that epic story. Our God, the author and creator of life, is writing an epic story. And our lives are all a part of it. We're all players. As Nate Wilson says in his book, Notes from the Tilted World, if someone else was delivering your lines, would you like that character? If someone else was wearing your attitude, would you be impressed? If you were looking at the story of your life right now, from outside of your life, what would you see? Where are you in your story arc? Are you at the beginning? Or are you nearing the end? Are you at a peak? Or are you in a valley? Would you look like someone who's full of joy, living an abundant life? Or are you a grumbler and a complainer? Are you flourishing? Or are you languishing? I love the word flourishing. It can be so descriptive, and we don't use it that often. It should bring to mind a vigorous state of thriving and prospering, of luxuriant growth. Flourishing is living life to the fullest. Flourishing person's faith is integrated and expressed in their personal growth, family life, work, spirituality, care for others. They're walking in the spirit, and it shows in every aspect of their lives. Is that you? And, of course, at times it includes suffering, mistakes, falling, failing. It's that, it's that cycle of conflict, falling, resolution, repentance. But in the midst of that, are you visibly thriving? Is that what your life looks like? Or would you look more like someone who's languishing? Some may say feels like they're in a rut. Maybe their spiritual life is in a rut or their relational life is in a rut. Maybe their marriage is in a rut. Maybe they don't know how to describe it. It's just a feeling of, of languishing. Maybe they don't know how they got there. Maybe they don't know how to get out. Maybe they feel like Eeyore. Kids all know who Eeyore is. Right? Eeyore walks around. His countenance is down. Nothing is ever good. Loneliness. Quiet despair. Anxiety. Anger. Lack of a sense of purpose. Do any of those things describe you? Some may feel simply stuck in an unfulfilling job or a dysfunctional relationship. The bottom line is, though, languishing 
is spiritual apathy. So are you languishing or flourishing? That's the question I want us to answer this morning as we look at the stories of our lives. So let's start thinking about our story. A couple aspects of our stories as individuals. First, God made everyone for a purpose. God made you to do something. doesn't matter how young or how old you are. God made you to do something. And the something God made for you to do is most likely very different from the something that God made for the person sitting next to you to do. Everyone is different. Everyone has different skills and strengths. Some of you are single career men and women. Some of you have young children. Some of you have children who are all grown and gone. Different places in life and different skills. And God has different ways for you to use those skills, even with the same skills as someone else. And you might not even have considered the ways God would have you to use those skills. We have examples throughout scripture for how God uses people in ways they never imagined. Joseph was a shepherd who became only second to Pharaoh in Egypt. Moses, who claimed he couldn't speak well, becomes a spokesman for God's people. Fishermen become evangelists to the world. There's another example that God preserved for us where he knows someone with a skill and calls them to use that skill. It's the first person that God says he filled with the Spirit of God. Does anyone know who that is? Give you a hint. It wasn't Adam. It wasn't Noah. It wasn't Abraham. It wasn't Moses, Elijah, or Daniel. It was Bezalel. Remember him? You know who he is? I didn't either. Name didn't ring a bell. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a king. He wasn't an apostle. He was a craftsman. Skilled in design. Exodus 31 says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. God took someone with specific skills, and not skills related to preaching or ministering or everything, specific skills. He was a craftsman and had a purpose for him. And in this case, it was to make the tent of meeting in the Ark of Testimony. But we're all Bezalels. God has given us all abilities and intelligence, and it looks different for everyone. But God has something specific for you to do, and he has uniquely prepared you to do it. Don't look around and compare yourself to others. Comparison is the thief of joy. God made every one of you unique and every one of you for a purpose. That's the first thing as we think about being characters in a story. We each have a purpose. Second, we have to realize we're only in this story for a short time. God's writing an epic story, but we're only characters crossing the stage for a very short period of time. We've only been given the time the Lord has given us, and that's it. Psalm 90 verse 10 says, The years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Our time is limited. We need to redeem the time. Ephesians 5 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
We have to use our time wisely. We have to view it as precious. It's easy to lose track of that. One day runs into another, and pretty soon, not just a month has gone by, but a year has gone by, and then a lifetime has gone by. I hear from folks who have kids that are grown and out that time growing up went so fast. With young kids, I'm just nodding going, wow, because some of these days sure seem long. And they smile, knowing that I'll be on the other side of that soon, wondering where the time went. Psalm 90:12. so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are. Recognize how few they are so we can spend them as we should. Third element of our story is where that conflict comes in. There's an adversary. Back to the Gospel of John, chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus states that he came that his sheep may have an abundant life. But we can't ignore the first part of that verse. The thief, Satan, will do everything he can to rob you of your abundant life. To kill your contentment, to destroy your peace. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's looking for people to devour. It's a real adversary. This is serious stuff. This is warfare. It's not just a metaphor. It's a daily reality. People die, and not just physically, but even worse, spiritually. This is why Paul writes about us having armor in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And in the midst of all that, Jesus came to give you an abundant life. So those are three common elements to our stories. You're each a unique character with a purpose. You're only on stage for a short time, and there is an adversary. So now, looking at yourself in the story, knowing those common elements, you need to determine where you are. Are you languishing or flourishing? Even a character that's mostly flourishing will have languishing times, and we need to understand what those look like. So what are some signs you may be languishing? First, are you pretending to be someone you're not? Do you do or say things hoping people will think you're better, smarter, more together than you actually are? Do you say things just to make yourself look intelligent or accomplished? Because pretending to be, pretending to be someone you're not takes a lot of effort. It can be exhausting. And if you're so wrapped up in trying to be something you're not, you can miss that purpose that God has for you. Die to your false self. It can be a huge relief. Or do you think you should be someone else? In a perfect world, would you like to be someone different, like her or like him? Their life seems to be going well. But do you then feel guilty or down when you're not that person or your life doesn't look like theirs? Comparison is a killer, especially when you think that person has it all together. 
Because the reality is they don't. None of us do. And you will not ever look like everyone else. Or are you trying to be who other people want you to be? Everyone has an agenda for you. You look around your daily life. Your boss wants you to take on more responsibility and be more productive. Your gym wants you to be more fit. Your credit card company wants you to be more in debt. Networks want you to watch more TV. Restaurants want you to eat more food. Everyone has expectations for you. But there's only one expectation that matters, God's. And I know that's easier said than done. But you're, if you're focusing on becoming the person other people want you to be, A, you'll never get there. And B, you'll be ignoring who God wants you to be. But then the question is, are you afraid of who God wants you to be? A lot of people equate spiritual maturity with following all the rules of the Bible. Galatians 3 clearly states that no one is justified by following all the rules. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Jesus didn't say, I've come that you may follow all the rules. He said, I've come that you may have life, abundant life. Or are you afraid that God might put you in uncomfortable situations? Well, yes, he might. And he has promised he will never put you in situations that he does not give you the strength to handle. He gives what he commands. Or are you just drifting? Just drifting. Because more often than not, you'll drift into being someone you don't want to be or someone that if you were looking at, you wouldn't like. Drifting does not turn out well. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that spiritual children, as opposed to the mature, get tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. They drift away and are lost. What kind of character are you? So Jesus says he came that you may have life and you may have it abundantly. Is your life abundant or is it just busy? I've yet to meet anyone who, when I ask how they are, say, oh, good, but I'm not that busy. Everyone's busy. My four-year-old from time to time claims he has, can't find anything to do, but everyone else I meet is busy. We're here, there, and everywhere. We're distracted. We're preoccupied. We can't focus on the task in front of us. We don't follow through. We don't keep our commitments. We're so busy with a million things, we often don't see the important things slipping away. Busyness can lead to languishing. Now, busyness is not a sin. There's a lot of great things that keep us busy, raising families, working hard. But busyness, when it distracts us from the things of God, is the thief stealing us away. We all know this statement. You make time for what's important, no matter how busy you are. So where are the things of God in your list? Bible reading, family devotionals, devoted prayer time, things of the church, the people of the church. Are you just too busy? The church is not just a group of people who do their own things all week and gather on Sunday mornings to worship. So sometimes there's a veneer of activity and busyness, but there's nothing strategic being accomplished. Sometimes the things on the top of the list are not what would grow you in your sanctification or what would advance the kingdom. But since the time is being filled, it's easy to dismiss 
using that time in other ways. You tell yourself there just there simply isn't enough time. Then you keep spending it the way you always have and being where you've always been. God uses busy people. Stop making that an excuse for why you don't get on the things of God in your life. But busy can lead to languishing. And languishing can be described as a loss of zeal. Paul in Romans 12:11 says, "Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord." And we see this in the culture all around us. The culture is so apathetic towards Christ. Our culture's perception is that religion is best in moderation, best kept to yourself, not mentioned in public. Even many churches aim for a middle ground. They want enough religion to be respectable, but not so much that they're viewed as zealots. Parents tell their children they shouldn't be atheists, but at the same time, their faith is fine just staying in this one area of their lives. That leads to apathy. If it's not the most important thing, if I can push it to the corner of my life, then I can ignore it altogether. This is what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, there's that drifting again. They'll just wander off. When we become apathetic, we wander off. Look at Western civilization as a whole. We're so busy chasing our own passions and our own lusts that we've lost any sense of the subtlety of the enemy, that adversary that attacks. We've lost the notion that there even is an adversary. Western Christians have grown careless and apathetic, grown slothful in zeal. 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. We've become more concerned with our own comfort and well-being than with the command of Christ that we should follow in his steps. And then the thief comes and steals people away and steals churches away and steals denominations away and steals nations away. So it's surprising that so many Christians are content with lukewarmness. Lukewarmness. Being lukewarm. I don't think lukewarmness is a word. But lukewarm religion seems to be what many Christians aim for so they can live comfortably in the culture but still hang on to their beliefs. Jesus is very clear how he feels about that, and he expresses it to the church in Laodicea in Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 15. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That was the ESV. New King James says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's Jesus speaking. I wish you were one or the other, but since you're merely lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich with everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that spiritually you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind. What do we do with a passage like that? Languishing, lukewarm Christians choose to minimize it. Look, look in the news. There's so much going on in the world. There's danger all around. But really, the greatest danger to the world is not any of the things we see in the news. It's lukewarm Christians and lukewarm Christianity. 
and lukewarm Christians who think that lukewarm is normal, that it's okay. Lukewarm Christianity is anything but normal. It's sin, it's wrong, and it's not God's will for our lives or for the life of his church. The primary problem with Christian apathy or being lukewarm, the thing that makes it so serious is the thing we're apathetic or lukewarm about, and that's the person of Christ. Because that's the bottom line. There's an enormous disparity between the glory, wonder, and beauty of Christ and our bored, tepid, apathetic, whatever response to him. Simply put, apathy is a problem because it misses the whole point of Christianity, which is the greatness of Christ. Languishing Christians have lost a reverence for the Lord. They do not hold Christ in high esteem. In Revelation, again, chapter 5, we have this picture of worship around the throne of God. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That is reverent worship. Do you worship with all that is within you? What were they singing? Praise, acknowledging the awesomeness of Christ. Languishing Christians are lackluster in this sort of reverence and worship. Their relationship with God is is more along the lines of the buddy system. God's my buddy, and every time I rub the magic genie lamp and ask for something, he comes out and he does what I asked. But otherwise, I just do my own thing. Languishing Christians don't regularly acknowledge the awesomeness of God, the power of God, the mightiness, the majesty of God. They don't spend time just in praise. Are you all in here in worship? Do you understand where you are this morning? Hebrews 12, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Look sharp. Stay awake. We're gathered with all the saints, worshiping Almighty God. All right, final two things quickly. Languishing Christians live like chameleons. They blend into the surroundings they find themselves in. They're stealth reptiles. On Sunday, the Christian communion's in church. Then comes Monday morning at the office or at school or in the neighborhood. Christians blend into the surroundings they find themselves in, laugh at the off-color jokes, the sexist remarks, the backstabbing politics of office slander and gossip. And when someone makes a mockery of the name of God, those Christian communions join in or laugh along with the rest. That's why what Jesus said in Matthew 6 is so vitally important if you're going to flourish. No one can serve two masters, he said. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can only have one master, and the languishing Christians haven't come to that. They divide up their lives into all these segments, and one segment of their life is church, religion, but that's why they languish. For flourishing Christian, God owns every piece of their lives. Does a lot of this sound harsh? A little too black and white? You can either be hot or cold. You can only have one master, one way or the other. We often want it both ways, but God says we can't have it that way. 
it doesn't work that way. One last thing about languishing Christians, they live with no accountability. They don't want anyone asking them the tough questions of life. What'd you do today? Where are you in the word? What has God been teaching you? Who did you invest in today? How are you using the God, the gifts that God has entrusted you? How's your prayer life? Languishing Christians want nothing to do with accountability. They'll sit in church and listen to a sermon. They'll read books, but they don't want to come to terms with how they're really living, especially when it exposes them to other people. Psalm 139, 23, 24. This is a prayer. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you pray that on a regular basis? And if you're struggling with the habitual sin, when the Spirit convicts you of something, do you find someone to hold you accountable? A friend who can check in and see how you're doing specifically. Do you think that if you did, it would lead to languishing or flourishing? About a flourishing Christian, a couple things to see how we can approach having that abundant life that is promised to us in Jesus Christ. First, flourishing Christians are intentional about spiritual growth. They don't just show up on Sunday and wait for stuff to happen the rest of the week. The same goes for flourishing churches. Second Peter chapter 1, turn with me there if you have your Bible. Second Peter chapter 1. Start in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So he has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You could say he's granted us all things that pertain to an abundant life through the knowledge of him who called us. And we have escaped the corruption, the thief, the snare of the devil. We've escaped the adversary. So going on, for this very reason, because of those first two verses, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Make every effort. Don't be lukewarm or apathetic about it. Make every effort. Is it hard? Yes. Will it be inconvenient at times? Yes. But maybe there's something in there that you heard that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about. Self-control, maybe. Or steadfastness. Or brotherly affection. Maybe because it's an area of your life you need to grow. Peter goes on. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Did you catch that first sentence? They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. Ineffective and unproductive, what's that? That's languishing. They will keep you from languishing, from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will keep you from spiritual apathy. If anyone does not have the qualities he talked about, he's nearsighted and blind, has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. And then in verse 10, Peter comes to his therefore. 
Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Be intentional. Make every effort. Be disciplined. Practice. Be disciples. These are not just nice-to-haves, not just something to tack on the end of the day if there's time at the end of your busyness. This is life. Ecclesiastes says something very similar. Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Did you catch that last part? In the grave where you're going. For those of you who are young, the phrase in the grave doesn't mean very much. When you're young, you're immortal. I have an immortal living in my house. (laughs) Nothing can touch him. When you're those ages, most likely you have a lot of life ahead of you. When you're young, there's still the idea you can chase the dream God's put on your heart, and the grave doesn't enter the equation. But as you get older and move closer, the phrase means something. In the grave, there's no time to do the Lord's work anymore. There's no time to invest in God's church or invest in God's people. In the grave, there's no more time to make right relationships that have gone wrong. There's no more time to be courageous to stand up and speak for those who don't have a voice. In the grave, there's finality. It's over as far as this story is concerned. That should wake us up. It's time to start moving. I know summer's winding down and everyone's ramping up for the fall. But we've got to wake up and get on with the things of God. We've got to get on with it as individuals, as a church, as a broader church, as the people of God, as married couples, as parents, as families. We've got to get on with it. We've got to stop embracing apathy and half-heartedness. We've got to do it with all our might, as it says in Ecclesiastes. So how do I do that? How do I be successful at that? Three quick things I think can bubble to the top of our lists to help focus our minds, to help us stop being apathetic and half-hearted. Read your Bible. Some of you might have a daily devotional. Is that reading your Bible? Do you really know your Bible? Or are you reading a little devotional book and still functionally, biblically illiterate? When we talk about being in the Word, we're not talking about just having a little quiet time. That's important. But we need to study the Bible and know the Bible, taking seriously the Bible. These are the words of God. It is the foundation of an abundant life. Are you memorizing the Bible? I know a lot of us with little kids, memorizing the Bible is something we do, helping them to have Bible verses that they can refer to, come back to. Are you memorizing the Bible? As adults, are we putting the word of God in our minds in that way? Languishing Christians don't memorize the Bible. Are you constant in prayer? Is your first thought to go to God in every situation? Do you have a dedicated prayer time? Dedicated prayer time. It's surprising so many people think they can have a close relationship with someone they don't spend any dedicated time talking to. We've been called, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In daily life, that means that we talk to God throughout the day. 
We let our thoughts dwell on things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. The mindset on God has to become the established pattern of our lives. Our thoughts need to be trained so that they stay focused on things the Spirit produces, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of the things in Galatians 5. Because normally our thoughts want to escape toward the things we he talks about earlier in Galatians 5. Jealousy, envy, anger, sensuality, immortality, immorality, and idolatry. And this isn't something that's automatic. It doesn't come naturally. It involves action. It involves turning. Turning your ears and eyes away from the things of the world. And as the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The Bible. He memorizes it. He studies it. He reads it. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Does that sound like flourishing? It does to me. Many Christians understand this, but then they look around and they say, well, have you looked at my life? Have you looked at my job? Have you looked at... And they sigh. I don't know how that's going to look in my life. Look at all this. But understand this. God intends you to flourish exactly where you are. It doesn't matter where you are. Have you ever seen flowers or trees growing in improbable places? I took two of my boys backpacking two weekends ago. We were up in, uh, up in the mountains, and we're camping in this, this little valley surrounded by 500 feet of rock on both sides. And you look up, and there's trees growing. There's no dirt. There's no flat space. You look at the rock fields. There's flowers blooming in there. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen the little flowers growing up in the middle of a concrete parking lot? I'm sure you've heard the phrase, and we use it a lot in our house. Bloom where you're planted. I mean, maybe you got planted in a dumpster. Bloom. Maybe you got planted in a vacant lot. Bloom. Maybe you got planted in a dysfunctional family. Bloom. Maybe you've got health problems. Bloom. Maybe you're at the end of the road financially. Bloom. Maybe you've had all sorts of wrongs done to you. Bloom. Maybe you're here this morning and you've made some terrible decisions. Bloom. Maybe your heart is heavy. Maybe you know you're not flourishing. Bloom. You know you've wasted time. You're remorseful over that. Quit being remorseful and bloom. Start blooming. Jeremiah 29. Close with this. Turn with me to Jeremiah 29. I'm going to start in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So did you get that? Jeremiah is sending a letter to the exiles in Babylon. He goes on. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, Live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So you get this picture? In this moment, God's people, God's people, are stranded in a foreign place far from the promised land. Their city, Jerusalem, has been destroyed. Their lives are in a place they never expected and in a place they're not too happy with. He doesn't deny where they are. He doesn't glaze over the rough spot they found them in, they find themselves in. They're in exile. And their lives are far from perfect, far from the abundance they'd hoped for themselves, from the comfort they've found for themselves. They've been taken from their homes, the homes of their ancestors, and they've been placed in a strange place. And Jeremiah tells them to flourish, to thrive where they are, to continue living, doing their best to be all God has created them to be. He speaks on behalf of God, letting them know that though this place is different from what they've hoped for in their lives, that's exactly where they're supposed to be. Not only should they not be afraid of where they are or moan about where they are, but they should help that place thrive in all that they do, that they should live fruitfully in that seemingly barren place, spread the goodness they can make of their lives into the lives of all those around them. And who does it say put them there? Not the Babylonians, not Nebuchadnezzar, but that God himself placed them where they are. It's almost like he's writing the story. Everything they see, everything they touch, all the things they have to work with to build their lives into the future, none of it's an accident. It's a direct result of the will of God for the lives of those people finding themselves in those circumstances. Bloom where you're planted. Flourish right where you are. Jeremiah continues in verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Again, from notes from the Tilt World. Do not resent your place in the story. Do not imagine yourself elsewhere. Do not close your eyes and picture a world without thorns, without shadows, without hawks. Change this world. Use your body like a tool meant to be used up, discarded, and replaced. Better every life you touch. We will reach the final chapter. It's Act 3. It's Act 3 in God's story. He is reconciling all things to himself. You've been redeemed. You are living a gospel story. You have been given all things through Christ. Bloom where you're planted. From Psalm 92, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus came that you may have an abundant life. You will not flourish apart from God. Bloom where you're planted.
Heavenly Father, thank you that you can be counted on to guide us through our lives as we live the stories you have written for us. Thank you for the promise and the hope of your word. To us, the way often seems unclear. Our paths twist and turn in confusing ways as we wind along our journeys. Show us your ways, Lord. Show us how to walk by the Spirit. Guide us in your truth. Help us to spend time in your word so that may penetrate our hearts and serve as our guide, as a beacon and a light. God, our only hope in this world is in you. Our only hope for an abundant life is in Jesus, our Savior. Help us to grow up more into maturing, flourishing Christians. May we be characters in your story that glorify you in all that we think, in all that we say, in all that we do. We ask this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.